Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Debbie Sorensen. Today on New Books in Psychology, I am talking with Dr. Sandra Amit. She is a neuroscientist, and together with Dr. Sam Wong, she wrote the book, Welcome to Your Child's Brain, How the Mind Grows from Conception to College. This book covers research on just about every aspect of human development you can think of. Prenatal development, sleep, learning languages, social development, intelligence, the list goes on. There are a lot of books out there for parents, and this one is unique in that it is really true to the developmental research, and it presents a very balanced view of how children grow. And I have a PhD in developmental psychology, and to be honest, there are only a handful of books for parents out there that I would actually recommend that parents read, and this is one of them. Um, If you're at all interested in the science of how children learn and grow, you'll enjoy this book. Hi, Sandra. Hi. Welcome to New Books in Psychology. Um, I was just wondering if you could get us started for the interview today by telling us a little bit about yourself. Okay. I'm a neuroscientist by training. I got my PhD from the University of Rochester working on how learning is easier in young animals than older animals. So in some sense, I've been in this field a really long time. I did a postdoc at Yale working on the same basic problem. And then I decided to leave research and spent 10 years working as a scientific editor. The last five years of that, I was editor-in-chief of Nature Neuroscience, which is a leading journal of brain research. That's where scientists publish the information that they want other scientists to see. And I left there in 2008 when my first book came out and spent a year sailing across the Pacific Ocean with my husband. We went from San Francisco down to New Zealand and back over 14 months. Wow, that sounds amazing. Yeah, that was pretty interesting. And when I came back from that, my co-author Sam Wong and I started working on Welcome to Your Child's Brain. And how did you decide you were interested in writing a book like this? Well, as I said, I've been working on learning in young animals from almost the beginning of my career. So this was a very obvious place to go for our second book. It's really fascinating. I mean, even if you don't have kids yourself, everybody was a child, and we all sort of wonder how we got to our adulthood and with our own particular characteristics, uh, brain development really is how you become yourself. And so I've always found it fascinating, and I figured a lot of other people probably would too. Well, it's a really fascinating book, and um, I enjoyed reading it. I, I was telling you earlier, I my background is in developmental psychology. That's what my PhD is in, and I really enjoyed reading this. For me, it was a kind of a refresher course on all the, a lot of the developmental psychology research and the neuroscience, um, developmental neuroscience research, and so it was really nice to read. So 
thank you for writing it. I'm really glad you enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I really enjoyed about it, so I'm a, a new parent myself. I have an infant, and I really found your book to be reassuring. Um, I think there's a lot of parents, parenting books out there that are, you know, kind of focused on one thing as if it's, you know, the most important thing and, you know, you have to do this or that. And I think there's a lot of anxiety out there for parents. But I really think that most parents who read your book will find it to be reassuring, Um and I wonder what you could, if you could maybe start by talking a little bit about what the neuroscience research tells us about how maybe parents don't need to worry as much as they often do about some of those little things. Yeah, I really hope that this book will be reassuring to people. I think as a culture right now, we're we're in a moment where people are having far more anxiety than they need to about child development, about parenting. There's a very strong tendency to blame parents for anything that might ever happen to their children. Obviously, there's a long history of that going back to Freud and psychiatrists blaming schizophrenia on mother's behavior. And we now know that child development is a really interactive process where children are born with tendencies, they are individuals from the moment of birth, and these developmental interactions are two-way. Children influence parents, parents influence children. There are not, there's not a infinite range of possibilities for any child, and although parenting certainly does matter and can help, it's not the case that as a parent you get to decide what kind of child you're going to have or what kind of adult that child is going to grow up to be. The child has a great deal of say in what happens. So the the children are sort of wired in a way that they will, you know, they will, uh, well, actually, you write about, I think the word you call, the term you use for it is brain talents, that, that babies are wired to start learning from a young age, and they sort of do that on their own. How are babies kind of born to learn about the world? So babies are predisposed to learn about the parts of the world that are most important to them. They're not wired to learn just anything. So the easiest example to think about is learning language. From the second day of life, babies have a predisposition to pay attention to human voices. They find human voices more interesting. They attend to them more. And one reason that that's probably true is because a big part of a young baby's job is to listen to speech and learn about the sounds of the native language, learn about how those get put together to make words, learning how words get put together to make sentences. None of that requires any deliberate teaching. In fact, the best way to teach your child language is just to interact as you would instinctively have uh, little conversations with the baby, even at the time when the baby isn't talking back yet. And mothers and fathers do this naturally. Nobody needs to teach you that it's fun to sit down and have a little back and forth where you talk to your baby. Almost everybody, even older children, 
will instinctively use this phrasing that's called motherese. Oh, what a lovely baby! Where they pitch their voice higher and exaggerate vowels, exaggerate spaces between words. If you think about that, all those things are working toward making speech easier for the baby to understand and learn. But nobody does that because, you know, they sent their baby to speech class. It's one of this this wide variety of things that babies are naturally predisposed to learn based on their normal interactions with other people. Great. Yeah, I mean, that's. I think to me that's part of what I found to be reassuring is you don't need any fancy equipment. You don't need to do anything that you're not already doing. The babies, the children are, are kind of wired to do a lot of this stuff automatically. So that's, as a parent, I think that's comforting to know. So you cover in the book so many topics, so many really interesting topics and um, all different aspects of development. And so I just thought I'd kind of start with some questions about the very beginning of development, which is the prenatal development. Um, And again, this is another area where if you look around out there, there's all these do's and don'ts and warnings out there on the Internet and, you know, a person could get paranoid. Um, So based on the research, what do you think is important and, and which factors maybe aren't so important? There is certainly a lot of anxiety out there, a lot of people promoting anxiety, really. Um, I think one one reason is just that it sells books. That a book saying probably your pregnancy is going to be fine would be completely accurate, but not too many people would buy it. Yeah, I think that's true of parenting books as well. I'm sure. People like to yeah, sell books by by making you think that they have the one secret whether that, you know, fits with the research or not. So in fact, in most cases when a pregnancy fails, when somebody miscarries, it's not because the mother did anything wrong. It's because there was some genetic problem with the baby that led that baby not to grow properly. So I think everybody could really just relax a lot about this stuff. Obviously, you know, if you're a binge drinker, you should not do that during pregnancy. There was just a paper, though, that came out last week where some scientists evaluated a large database of women who had had small amounts of alcohol during pregnancy, no more than one drink a day, and found that that had no effect on the cognitive function in their babies. So I think what we do is we take things that are true, like fetal alcohol syndrome is caused by drinking during pregnancy, and then we overgeneralize them. Okay, nobody should ever drink anything during pregnancy. And part of that is because people are just so inclined to blame mothers if anything goes wrong that the natural reaction to that is to just say, okay, I'm not going to do anything wrong. I'm going to be a perfect mother. Then nobody will ever blame me for anything. And it just doesn't work that way. 
most of these problems are not in your control in the first place. Most problems with child development are pretty rare. And I think a lot of emotional energy is getting used up in worrying about things that for most people are not relevant worries. And in fact, it's in a practical sense, the people who buy parenting books and spend the most anxiety on this stuff are exactly the people who are least likely to encounter these kinds of problems. Right, because they're already engaged enough and caring enough as parents that they're investing their time and money into that. Exactly. Yeah. We've got now all what the about, wrong people worrying. Right, right. The ones that should be worried probably aren't spending a lot of time on parenting books. And And you write a bit about stress during pregnancy. Do you have any thoughts about that? Stress, really bad stress, like the kind of thing that happens when your spouse dies or when a hurricane comes and picks up your house and you have to be evacuated to somewhere else, definitely looks like it can cause problems with child development. But again, you don't want to jump to the conclusion of, oh, I have fights with my boss, I'm stressed, therefore something's going wrong with my baby. Nobody has linked those kinds of moderate, ordinary stressors mm -hmm. to problems with child development. And yet I think as soon as anybody hears, you know, you shouldn't be in a hurricane if you're pregnant, they immediately jump to, Oh, no, I had a fight with my husband just last week. The baby's probably ruined, mm -hmm. which is silly if you mm -hmm. really say it out loud. But a lot of these anxieties never quite get verbalized, and so you don't realize that they're not entirely logical. Mm -hmm. So the sort of day-to-day -day stress isn't really such a problem. And, in fact, you know, the last thing you need is to be stressed about being stressed. Yeah, that that's, of course, the worry that people hear, oh, stress is bad for the baby, and that makes them, well, stressed. Right. <laughs> On the other so, hand, you know, if you're looking for some reason why you can't cook dinner tonight or you need a bubble bath, I think that saying, oh, stress is bad for the baby would be a perfectly reasonable explanation. Might be nice every once in a while. <laughs> So one of the age-old questions in in developmental psychology is the the old nature versus nurture question. Um, can you talk a little bit about the complexity of the nature versus nurture issue from a more of a neuroscience perspective? Yeah, this is a really badly misunderstood area. Um, essentially, the problem is that there's no such thing as nature and no such thing as nurture that doesn't take the other into account. Everything that happens is some kind of a, a dance between a child's predispositions and the actual environment that that child is growing up in. And this stuff is super complicated because... The way a child gets treated actually depends in part on that child's predispositions. If you think about it, the best caretaker in the world 
can't treat a child who's fussy and cries all the time the same way as a child who's got a bright, sunny disposition. It would make no sense. And so it's systematically true that certain kinds of children get treated in certain kinds of ways. On the other hand, it is true that if you can break the cycle, you can sometimes make a better job of dealing with an innate tendency than would have happened otherwise. For example, children who are prone to aggression, who are liable to bite or punch when they feel frustrated, are hard to raise. And one of the things that often happens to them is that parents are rough with them in return, harsh and punishing, because these kids are just really frustrating to deal with. But if you get a really good parent who can deal with aggression calmly and firmly and without going off the deep end themselves, it is true that those children grow up to be considerably less aggressive in adulthood than kids who started out aggressive and then had parents who were harsh with them. Of course, the secondary problem with this is that kids who are aggressive tend, because of genetics, to be born to parents who are themselves aggressive. So in some ways, those kids go to the parents who are least well-suited to handle them. And everything in development is cycles like that. Something Children become more and more committed as they go along in development to being the way that they have that things have been for them before in a combination of their own reactions to their environment and what the environment is doing to them it's you can think of it sort of like a a river you know it starts out small it's not very deep it's relatively easy at that stage possibly to put into a different direction, but it's going to take some work. And as you go along, it gets bigger and deeper and flows more strongly and eventually gets to a point where it becomes very difficult to change indeed. Okay, thanks. Um, and you write about um, gender differences in in uh, girls' and boys' brains, which is something that can be a little bit controversial. Um, what do we know about boys' and girls' brains from a neuroscience perspective? There are some differences between boys and girls. I think we all systematically think about those kind of in the wrong way, which is that we tend to think of them as non-overlapping categories when actually most of the differences, almost all of them, are differences in degree, not in kind. So boys are on average moderately more active than girls, but that doesn't mean that there are no active girls or that there are no boys who want to sit still and read. And in fact, an average boy is more active than roughly two-thirds of girls. But that still is an awful lot of overlap. 
it means that for an individual child, it would be almost impossible to predict whether you had a boy or a girl based on how active that child was. But on the other hand, if you had a group of 10 boys and a group of 10 girls, on average, it would be pretty obvious which group was the boys and which group was the girls, as anybody who's hosted a child's birthday party probably knows already. (laughs) Are there other areas where there seem to be some small gender difference? So the There are a range of sizes and gender differences. The biggest one in childhood is toy preferences. That in three-year-old children, they will pick, you know, girls will pick dolls, boys will pick trucks with pretty high reliability. Now, of course, some of that is cultural training, I I tend to think of that three-year-old stage as the equivalent of what they call over-regularization in language, where a child learns to make plurals by putting S on things and goes around talking about foots and all kinds of words that are made up by following a rule all the time instead of the way most of us follow rules most of the time. So when kids are first starting to get their gender identity, their sense of themselves as being boys or girls, they often get really high-strung and insistent that all boys act like boys all the time, that all girls act like girls all the time. This is the stage when pink ballerina clothes are so popular with girls. And I think it's They're trying to figure it out. They're working on trying to figure out what a girl is and what a boy is. And that is really complicated, actually. Even for adults, it's complicated. So you can imagine that children at that young age would get kind of frustrated with all these people breaking the rules they've just learned about how to be a girl or how to be a boy. Most of these these sorts of gender differences soften up as people get older. In adults, the strongest gender differences are a male advantage for spatial reasoning and a female advantage for object memory. It is actually a real sex difference that the woman is more likely to know where the mustard is in the fridge than the man is. That's I don't know. Good to know. That could solve a lot of household disputes. Yep. So if a girl goes through that princess phase when she's, you know, two or three years old, that doesn't necessarily mean she'll be a very feminine girl for the rest of her life. Just might be going through a phase. I think for most girls, it is a phase. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about teenagers. It seems like um, teenagers can be kind of baffling to parents a lot of times, well, and everybody a lot of times. And in some ways, you know, they start to seem so grown up, but their brains are still really developing. Um, So what is known about adolescent brain development that might help parents kind of understand their teenagers better? So there are two things going on in adolescence. One is that the brain is not completely finished developing 
it's it's still on the same trajectory that it's been on since early childhood of gradually improving impulse control and self-control. So that's one thing, that uh, teenager self-control is not yet everything it's going to be in adulthood, and that's linked to the maturation of the frontal cortex, which is known to be involved in planning and organizing behavior, and especially in inhibiting behavior that's inappropriate. To my mind, the more interesting thing that's happened is something that makes teenage brains completely different from both child and adult brains. This is something that only goes on in the teenage years, and that is that teenagers peaking right around age 14 or 15 are much more sensitive to rewards and especially to social rewards than they have been before or will be again. And what that means is that they're more likely to approach situations that are uncertain to try to find out if there's something to be gained there. Now, this makes a good amount of ecological sense because the teenage years are when kids are moving out away from the family and trying to make a place for themselves in the world. And that involves dealing with quite a lot of uncertainty. It, and if you are inclined to go out and investigate that uncertainty and find out whether there's something good in it, you're probably going to do a lot better than if you just get scared and don't go through that process. But, of course, the combination of being willing to take chances in pursuit of rewards and having poor impulse control does not always work out very well for every kid. It's kind of a double whammy from the parental viewpoint. You really you want to help your kids to become more independent, but you also want them not to do anything irrecoverably stupid in the meantime. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of self-control, um, one of the things that you and Dr. Wong emphasize in the book is the importance of helping children develop self-control. And can you tell us why that's important and what parents can do to help with that? Self-control is important because it underlies almost every kind of success later in life. People with better self-control are not only have the obvious advantages that they're less likely to make mistakes involving short-term thinking, but they also tend to make better marriages, longer-lasting marriages, have more friends, to get more education, to have better job prospects, no matter how you define success for your child, having self-control is going to make that easier. And the nice thing about self-control, especially in contrast to some of the other things I've been talking about, is that it actually can be practiced and learned even in adulthood. There have been a number of studies, intervention studies, where people have gone in and had kids do new things and shown that compared to kids who didn't get to do those things, the intervention group developed better self-control. The overall principle, which is the same 
in a lot of areas of development is that you want your kids to be doing something that is challenging enough to be hard, but not so challenging that they're going to fail. So you want them to stretch a little bit, but then you want them to succeed because that's the way that you teach self-control. For a four-year-old or six-year-old, stretching a little before you succeed might be a matter of playing a board game where you have to only move your piece when it's your turn. You have to follow the rules. Anything that's a game is going to be easier to use to teach self-control than something that's hard than not fun because kids can supply their own motivation. It's obvious why your kid might want to play a board game. It's obvious why a child might want to take karate lessons, which is another thing. Taekwondo has been shown to improve self-control, especially in elementary school age boys. Kids also get uh, emotional advantages from having self-control. In individual children, the ones who have good self-control in general also tend to have good emotion regulation, which is to say that they're good at controlling their temper, they're good at understanding other people's emotions, why other people might have chosen to do the things that they did, and good at keeping their own emotions well regulated. And that makes that's probably part of why uh, these people make better marriages and have more friends because they are actually better at getting along with other people. That makes sense. Well, so um, speaking of play, you talked about um, using play and games as a way of developing self-control. Um, why is play in general an important part of development? Play is practice for adult life. It's low stakes, it's enjoyable, and it's very clearly linked across a variety of species to behaviors that are going to be needed in adult life. So animals that are predators play at chasing and wrestling. Animals that are prey tend to play at running away. Humans have several different kinds of play, but the the most elaborate and probably developmentally the most important is various forms of social play. All these, let's pretend that we're in a spaceship going to the moon, let's pretend that this is a school and all the teddy bears are the children. Any of those kinds of games are ways for kids to practice interacting with other kids and it motivates them just, as I said before, it's fun, so kids want to do it, and they want to do it well. If I'm playing, let's have a spaceship and go to the moon, and you want to pretend that the spaceship is your baby, we're not going to interact very well. And so kids actually police their own behavior, and they try to get other kids to behave in a socially acceptable way. And that is good practice for adult socializing so that the rest of us as adults don't go into the board meeting and 
try to have some different interaction from the one that the boss wants to have in the meeting. Taking cues from other people is something that little kids need to learn, and this kind of play is really useful for that. And that, too, is linked, by the way, to building self-control. Mm-hmm. That board meeting example might not go over so well if you didn't have a little self-control. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, these days, kids have more and more access to TVs, computers, video games. Uh, what do we know about how all that impacts brain development, and what would you recommend for parents in terms of how much exposure to um, their kids get to electronic media? For, you know, from basic neuroscience principles, we know that brains do best what they do most, so it would be really surprising if the change in environment with the introduction of TV and video games and so forth didn't have an effect on the brain. On the other hand, it's not so very obvious what those effects are, and what we what we know from research so far is it seems to be kind of a mixed bag. In some cases, exposure to electronic media is making child's brain development move in a less positive direction and in other cases in a more positive direction. For example, the average U.S. child starts watching television at the age of five months and research shows that that's probably a really bad idea. There's been nothing to suggest that there's any benefits from TV watching before about the age of two and a half, and there have been a number of studies suggesting that very young children watching TV is probably bad for them in some ways. The American Academy of Pediatricians recommends no TV before the age of two, and I think that's pretty well supported by research. It may not be so much that TV watching itself is actively harmful, it's just that it tends to take away the time that children would otherwise spend actively learning from their environment, interacting with other people. So, for instance, the Baby Einstein videos that are supposed to teach kids various things, when they've been studied, the kids who watch those videos routinely have no fewer vocabulary words than kids who didn't watch them. Now, that's probably not because watching baby Einstein videos makes you stupid. It's just because if you're watching baby Einstein videos, you're probably not talking to mom, which is how you mostly learn vocabulary words at that age. So that's that's one on the bad side. Somewhat surprisingly, it looks like playing video games has some positive effects on the brain. And in particular, kids who play a lot of video games have better ability to deploy their attention in deliberate ways, to pay attention to exactly what it is that they want to pay attention to than kids who don't play video games. And that is particularly true for the exact kind of video games that most parents hate the most 
the ones where your job is to shoot enemies who pop up from various places. Now, those games require a great deal of focused attention, and there have been a number of studies suggesting that the kids who play them actually do benefit not only in playing the video games, but also in other unrelated tasks. They're able to pay attention across a broader range of the visual field. They're able to pay attention to more objects at the same time. They're actually better at detecting faint outlines of things, like cars in fog, for instance. All of those are probably trained by the experience of playing video games. Huh. So maybe, you know, it's not all bad to have kids who get, get absorbed in those those games. Interesting. Well, well like a lot of things in... in uh, this type of research, psychology research in general and developmental research as well, it's maybe more comp, you know, there's not this simple answer to a question like that that sounds like there's uh, more complexity to it. And again, one of the things as a parent that you want to think about is not just what is my child doing, but what is my child not doing? Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you wanted to if you if you were concerned about your child playing video games, one of the questions you might ask is, okay, is my child playing video games all the time? Is my child never going outside? Is my child never talking to other children? Is my child never getting any exercise? Those might be valid reasons to get concerned about video game use. Sure. <laughs> For children and adults. Indeed. Yeah, it's a dosing issue. <laughs> well, I'm really interested in the resilience research. I think it's really fascinating. And, and um, what do we know about how children overcome stressful experiences? And then what are some of the factors that seem to be really important for resilience? There is a lot of individual variability in how seriously damaging various kinds of stressful events are. They're, in general, just like I said a minute ago for self-control, stress resilience is most strongly supported by having experiences that are challenging but not too challenging. Experiences that the child gets stressed and is able, usually with the help of an adult, to overcome that stress, to learn how to suit themselves, to learn how to make active changes to the situation to make things better. You know, maybe a fight with a playmate where the child learns how to negotiate for what the child wants and eventually works out a comfortable situation. Any of those kinds of experiences are going to build a child more resilient than either a child who is so stressed that it's not possible to overcome that stress or a child who never gets challenged at all in the first place. Children who don't get enough adversity in their lives actually grow up to be less resilient, less able to cope 
than children who have had routine practice coping with mildly or moderately bad events throughout their lives. So when you're talking about those extreme stressors, you're talking about the you know, Romanian orphanages and that type of thing that, that there's a lot of research about the not the day-to-day kinds of things that a lot of parents really, I mean, I, I think I see this a lot with parents trying to even keep that, any of that day-to-day stress from happening yeah, for their kids. We do that a lot these days, and it's probably not a good idea. Uh, yeah, so if, you know, if you live, if a child grows up in a household that's completely chaotic and you know, nothing that happens is under their control, that's not good for resilience. But a child whose parents are constantly hovering, waiting to intervene at the least sign of problems is also not going to have any practice at successfully coping with stress. And it turns out practice matters a lot for that. Mm-hmm. We get better at coping with stress as we do it. So I, I think letting your kids struggle a little bit with everyday stuff, letting them get frustrated with their homework, letting them take the first shot at working out problems that they're having with friends, all that stuff has the potential to really help build resilience in ways that are going to be very useful to that child in adulthood. To me, that seems kind of similar to this idea of the good enough parent or, you know, being a parent, but if you, if you, a parent who's engaged and who's meeting the child's basic needs, but if you try to be this, you know, perfect super parent, you might actually be doing more, more harm than good. I think so. And not least because the attempts to be a super parent often lead the parents themselves to be stressed and, and cope poorly. It's a lot of pressure. It is. Well, I've heard some debate recently about whether parents might be overusing praise with their kids, just saying, you know, good job for everything that the child does. Um, what? And, and you write a little bit about effective praise versus ineffective praise. What's What's the distinction there? Lots of praise is great, but you want to make sure that you're praising the right things. You want to make sure that you're praising behavior that is under your child's control and that you're specific enough when you praise the child that the child knows what to do again next time. So if you say, wow, you're so smart, if you break that down, that's not really actionable. The child can't take on board, oh, I should be smart again next time. And strangely enough, what happens when you praise a child for those kinds of intrinsic characteristics is that they tend to get a little bit intimidated, and the next time they have to do something that's intellectual, challenging, they might think, oh, I don't know how to do this. Maybe I'm not so smart after all. And they'll stop trying as hard. On the other hand, if you praise a child for something that is in their control, Oh, I'm I'm so proud of how you stuck with that math homework even after you were starting to get frustrated with, and look, you finally did it. That's great. That's something that is under the child's control that they can do again next time. I was so pleased when you were playing today that your friend 
Justin tried to take away your toy and you just gave it to him. You were so nice. You didn't get mad. These are the kinds of things that you you specifically want your child to do again. And that's the key. Praise praise the child for what the child does and not for what the child is. Obviously, you know, you want to say I love you and I think you're fantastic. But that's not praise in the sense that we're talking about here. So you're kind of looking for for some self-acceptance that, that they're loved and that they're okay as they are, but then focus on those specific behaviors that you want to reinforce. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, just saying good job doesn't really tell the child anything unless you tell mm-hmm. it, unless you say why it was a good job. Mm-hmm. Well, you have a lot of really interesting topics in the book and a lot of, um, I think, things that are really helpful, if, you know, and um, different, a whole, all kinds of different areas of development. So, you know, given most parents, especially most parents who would be reading a book like this or listening to an interview like this, care enough that they really do want to do what they can to help their children's development, can you, um, I guess, leave us with a few, do you know, basic recommendations, like what do you think are kind of the most important things for parents? In general, it's super important for parents to love their kids, to let their let the kids know that they're loved, to be willing to work with a child who is actually in front of you and not get distracted by your own wishes about what could have been or might have been. If you get a child who's not a football player, then figure out what that child loves and can do well. Even if you were hoping that your child would be a football player, don't try to force it too hard. It's obviously great to let your kid try out a bunch of different activities and find out for themselves what they really love and want to devote themselves to. And I think it's great for parents to encourage that. But don't be too dogmatic about what exactly it should be that your child likes or is good at. Just try to pay attention enough to find out what your child wants, what kind of a person your child is, and then you can do quite a lot to help them to learn to deal with their own predispositions and their own tendencies in a healthy and happy way. Well, that sounds very balanced, as does a lot of of what you present in the book. And it's really refreshing to read a book for parents that is, you know, not extreme and that really sticks to the research. Um, So there are a lot more interesting topics in your book, and I really recommend that parents who are interested in this stuff take a look at the whole book because we're running a little low on time here. So I wanted to just ask you, um, what are you working on now? I am now the science editor for a new website called beinghuman.org where we're looking into all of the science behind the human experience. So I'm there's a lot of neuroscience and psychology on the site, but we're also talking about genetics, we're talking about anthropology, we're talking about animal behavior and evolution. We're interested in anything that might tell us more about the potential of 
people to be all kinds of different things and also what we all share in common. Oh, that sounds really fascinating. I'll have to check that out. Nice to hear a kind of an inter- interdisciplinary approach to that. Uh, yeah, it's been really what fun. What makes us human. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, that sounds great. I want to thank you again for being on the New Books Network today. I really enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, that was really fun. Thanks. Thanks. This is Debbie Sorensen. You've been listening to a conversation with Dr. Sandra Amet, co-author of Welcome to Your Child's Brain. Thank you for listening to New Books in Psychology.